Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Investor insecurity, COVID fears, election uncertainty equals more volatility. Turnout tied one week till the U.S. election and over 60 million votes already cast. And dividend delight, HSBC shares jump as the bank says it may resume dividend payout. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to you, First Move. As always, seven days to go now until the U.S. presidential elections. No end in sight either to the global COVID emergency. We'll hear from the author of a study that comes to a pretty shocking conclusion. It says the lives of more than 100,000 Americans could be saved between now and February if 95% of the population wore masks. A federal mask mandate, it says, is needed immediately. And we're seeing these popping up all around the world. We'll discuss. In the meantime, the global health crisis, the inability to agree on more emergency aid and I think just general pre-election jitters spells volatility for markets. U.S. futures, you can see those stabilizing, bouncing a little bit here after Monday's 2% market drop, though Europe remains under pressure, not only have American cases hit fresh records, but the second COVID wave in Europe appears larger than the first. Are we underestimating the risk of larger scale shutdowns? We'll discuss that later in the show too. For now, a brief focus on the fundamentals and some deal making in the chip sector, a sector I think forever changed by the pandemic as we rely more on big data centers now to host things like video conferences and other digital services. AMD buying Zillinx for $35 billion in stock. Bad news, perhaps, for rival Intel. Those shares are up some 15% pre-market. Intel's, meanwhile, pulling back, as you can see, a little bit too. Earnings also lending some support. Financial giant HSBC, as I mentioned, up nearly actually more than 4% in Hong Kong on better than expected earnings. Spanish bank Santander also raised their forecast too. Got to remember here that the banks have a lot of bad news priced into them for the stock. Some down some 30 to 45%, some even more, as you can see on that chart. For others, though, I think the big worry now is that Q3 earnings are deeply out of date as the health risks rise and consumers and small businesses go without more financial aid. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, I've just named a whole host of reasons for investors to be unsure and uh, and nervous here, clearly. One thing we have to remember is we're still pretty close to recent record highs, quite frankly. But I think the point about Europe is key. That wave looks bigger than the first. 
It really does. And you saw Russia put on a, a mask mandate today. And you've seen other countries and regions uh, and counties and the like doing the same. It's a conversation not really happening with much uh, gusto here in the United States, quite frankly. And when you look at the U.S., uh, the U.S. case count, it almost looks like three crests of a wave there in terms of the rising coronavirus cases. And that's what really kind of struck the market yesterday. Three things, I think. The, the stimulus impasse, number one. Number two, these rising case counts and rising hospitalizations in the United States. And three, seven days exactly now to go until the election. There's an awful lot of election uncertainty baked in here when you consider that the S&P 500 is still up 5% uh, for the year. So pricing in a calm and kind of perfect scenario in terms of election risk as well. So a lot going on here for investors. Yes. Predicting and pricing in a, a calm aftermath of this right. and a result on the night, quite frankly, looks deeply complacent. And we'll be discussing that, I think, in the show. The irony here is that if we are seeing a worse wave in, in Europe, it's coming to the United States potentially too, Christine. It requires and the need for financial aid and more financial right. aid here is ever greater than before. And the Senate's now, it seems, adjourned until after the election. And I think when you look at the kinds of stocks that really fell most sharply yesterday, right. leisures and leisure, you know, hotel, airlines, uh, cruise lines, these are sectors where both the employees or the former employees are hurting very badly. So you need that support in terms of direct stimulus aid or potentially uh, those more uh, robust jobless benefits. But also these industries have been begging for help and relief uh, from the government. It's in some cases an existential crisis for some of these industries. If you're not talking about air travel, resuming to normal until something like 2023 or 2024, as some CEOs have worried. So we're at a moment here where they've gone quiet in Washington on stimulus at the very moment where you need to guarantee the recovery. We're going to see Thursday a GDP number that's likely to be gangbusters, the best we've ever seen, a record. And it is completely stale, completely rearview mirror. The action is all about what's happening today and what's, what's, what's well, the damage going forward by this resurgent virus. Yeah, all the data now deeply, deeply out of date in the face yeah. of, um, of what we're seeing on a day by day basis at this moment, too. You know, one of the other things that I wondered whether voters, uh, sorry, investors were looking at yesterday was the sheer quantity of early voting and the proportion of that that are mail in voting and the challenge here for counting these votes, not only from the point of view of the risk of a contested election, which I think yeah. we sort of priced out and perhaps shouldn't have done, but also just the delay that this may take and the probability then that that provides a window for a contested result on either side, quite frankly. Yeah, and, 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 and a window for legal challenges and how those, we know that I think it was December 12th in 2000 before there was a winner declared uh, in, in Florida, right, that allowed the election to be called. I've been cautioning people not to be hoping for election night. It is an election, the 2020 election, and we will know the outcome of that election when it has been carefully counted uh, and carefully, cautiously uh, decided, and, and we should just, you know, Put away our hopes and expectations for a, a, a late night Tuesday, early morning Wednesday decision. I don't think that's happening. Yeah, I'm with you. We shall see. Christine Romans, <laughs> thank you so much for that. Watch this space. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A powerful typhoon heading towards Vietnam after bringing death and destruction to the Philippines. More than one million people have been told to leave their homes, with the storm expected to reach the Vietnamese coast early on Wednesday. Right now, it has strength of a Category 3 hurricane. It left at least three people dead in the Philippines, while dozen, a dozen or more are missing. 
A second wave, as we've been discussing of the coronavirus pandemic sweeping across Europe and threatening to spin out of control. Governments are imposing new restrictions to try and avoid full-scale lockdowns. France is leading European cases and a government advisor there says the true number of daily infections could be twice as high as official figures show. China, meanwhile, testing nearly 5 million people in the western region of Xinjiang after one asymptomatic COVID case was reported over the weekend, as we discussed on the show yesterday. The outbreak is Xinjiang's second since China's initial wave of infections was brought under control in March. While parts of the world are tightening restrictions, Melbourne, meanwhile, Australia just lifted its lockdown minutes ago. Millions of people there have been under stay-at-home orders for months, but officials decided it's now time to reopen after they recorded no new cases for two days in a row. It's not quite business as usual, though, in Australia's second biggest city, as Selena Wang has been covering developments for us and reports. Julia, Melbourne is exiting one of the world's longest and toughest lockdowns. This decision was made after reporting zero COVID-19 cases for the first time since June. Today, authorities also reported the second straight day of no new cases. For more than 100 days, though, the city's 5 million residents had to stay at home except for essential trips and for a while could not even travel more than five kilometers from their homes. But from midnight Wednesday, they can now freely leave their homes and stores, restaurants and bars will all reopen. But there are still a litany of rules in place. For instance, outdoor gatherings are limited to 10 people. People are still required to wear face masks when leaving the home. In fact, those caught maskless without a waiver could be fined 200 Australian dollars. They also cannot leave the Melbourne metropolitan area without a permit until November 8th. If they are caught without a valid reason, that's a fine of thousands of dollars. Now, this long lockdown has been controversial. It strained the economy. People even protested the lockdowns in September, with dozens arrested. But health experts say the approach has worked. Nearly three months ago, Victoria's Premier Daniel Andrews declared a state of disaster when Victoria State was reporting more than 700 COVID-19 cases a day. He then put in place restrictions that other governments in the U.S. and Western Europe have been hesitant to do. But now, Victoria has reigned in the pandemic, while cases in Europe and the U.S. continue to skyrocket. This experience in Victoria shows once again that targeted lockdowns plus testing and contact tracing are effective. The premier has praised Melbourne citizens for staying the course, but also gave a sobering reminder that residents have to be vigilant and that, quote, until a vaccine comes, there is no normal. There is only COVID normal. Julia? Selena Wang reporting from Hong Kong there. I have to say those donuts did look good. All right, seven days to go until the U.S. election and voters are coming out in droves. More than 60 million people have cast their ballots early, exceeding the 58 million who did so in 2016. And conservatives are also relishing a victory with Amy Coney Barrett, now officially a Supreme Court justice. Lots to discuss. John Harwood is at the White House for us. John, great to have you with us. So millions more have already cast their votes than did in the whole of 2016. And of course, we've still got a week to go. We have to underscore the sheer volume and enthusiasm for voting, irrespective of which candidate they're voting for here and which party. Julia, we're going to have a massive turnout in this election, uh, probably more than 150 million voters. Don't know how far north of that we're going to get. 
Uh, this continues a trend uh, during the Trump administration in 2018. We had a very large turnout in midterm elections. Both sides turned out heavily, although it was disproportionately in favor of the Democrats. We don't know if that's going to be the case this time. But what we do know is that Democrats have placed a big emphasis on early voting, so they're banking a lot of their vote. Republicans are counting on in-person voting on election day, and one risk associated with that, Julia, is that the pandemic seems to be cresting now, and that creates some dangerous conditions if you're counting on people, especially a lot of older Americans, to get out to vote on election day if the pandemic in those critical states, especially in the Midwest, is spiking. John, I also uh, want to weave in uh, the second story here and the victory celebrations that we saw as a result of the Supreme Court justice. Amy Coney Barrett now uh, being joined to the Supreme Court. Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group tweeted yesterday, after tonight, Republicans will have nominated 15 of the last 19 justices, despite having lost the popular vote in six of the last seven presidential elections. It says a few things to me. One, the laser-like focus of the Republicans on this Supreme Court and perhaps the lesser focus from the Democrats here, but also the importance of the Electoral College and what this all means for the country going forward. Well, most of it is luck, uh, Julie, in terms of the Supreme Court, because uh, uh, any president's going to fill a Supreme Court vacancy if he gets one. The president has happened to have uh, three vacancies. Uh, the one who did not get a chance to fill an open seat was Barack Obama, and that's because the Republican Senate, led by Mitch McConnell, refused to consider his nominee in the year 2016. Uh, but this creates a 6-3 conservative majority. It's a triumph for Mitch McConnell, for the conservative movement that has looked to use the Supreme Court as a way of uh, preventing the American society from going too far left. And the question is, how does that collide with the rising uh, uh, preferences of the electorate, which lean toward the Democrats? The Democrats are almost certain to win the popular vote again this year. So there's a potential collision course. And if Joe Biden takes uh, office next year, if he's got a Democratic Congress, they're going to pass legislation. Question is, does that get past the Supreme Court? Is the Supreme Court going to stand as a bulwark against what Democrats want to do? Uh, it's, uh, it's a very interesting situation. And, uh, you know, don't know how long that 6-3 majority will last. Uh, uh, vacancies occur unexpectedly. Nobody expected Antonin Scalia to die in, uh, in 2016. So that could happen at any time. Uh, but it's uh, an interesting uh, collision uh, on tap between the uh, executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating uh, year or so, whichever way this election goes. John Harwood, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. Shares in Europe's biggest lender, HSBC, are up almost 6%. The bank reported earnings that beat estimates and suggested that it might resume paying dividends. Anna Stewart joins me on this. Anna, it's uh, fascinating when you can have profits down 36% year on year and uh, investors celebrate like this. It's all relative, I guess, but it was the dividend that I think it got investors really excited here. Really excited about that dividend, despite, as you say, some pretty dismal headline figures. For Q3, revenue down 11%, pre-tax profit down 36%. That's compared to the year before. But the outlook is so much more optimistic than when we last heard from HSBC, which was back in July. And here's why. Credit losses appear to have stabilized. They now think for the full year that will come in at the lower end of the range they gave us, which was between 8 and $13 billion dollars. 
They are going to go further and faster on their mega cost-cutting plan. And perhaps the most interesting bit is a recognition that interest rates are going to be lower or negative for much, much longer. And as a result, they are changing their business model. They are shifting away from interest rate cents to business lines, they say, to fee-generating businesses. But back to that dividend, a final decision will be made in the full year results. That's not till February, Julia. And as you know, with this pandemic, a lot can change in weeks, let alone a whole quarter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've got the coronavirus to deal with. They've got ongoing interest rates, low interest rates that make the business a challenge. They're also, of course, caught in the crossfire between tensions with China and the West over what happens in Hong Kong. And this has been really pivotal, I think, for them. And if we're talking about turning this super tanker around and honing in on some of those Asian businesses, perhaps, that are more lucrative, doesn't that also accelerate the challenge that they have with that particular issue in that region? It sure does. The fee-generating business shift was what I was listening out to on the earnings call today, and that really is doubling down on Asian investment in wealth management, asset management, insurance, and so on, all the bits that make money particularly in China, which is where it generates the majority of its profits. And this is going to raise eyebrows once again. Of course, this is where HSBC generates much of its profits. But there are these huge tensions between China, particularly with the national security legislation, with the US, with the resulting sanctions. And as ever on this call, there were questions as to whether HSBC should reconsider where it is domiciled whether or not it should split its business between Asia and the rest of the world. And the simple answer from the CEO was no. But I feel like we're going to hear that question asked again and again and again. Julia? Yeah, the bottom line is there are no simple (laughs) answers to this conundrum or any of them, quite frankly. Anna Stewart, great job. Thank you so much for that. All right, still to come. On First Move, it's time to mask up. And not just because it's almost Halloween. A new study says mask wearing could save 100,000 American lives this winter. We'll be speaking to the author and destination quarantine. The 14-day isolation period is more damaging to the airline industry than any other measure, says the CEO of Dubai Airport. More of that interview coming up on the show. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. futures are trying to bounce back after Monday's pullback. It was actually the worst drop for the S&P 500 in a month. All this amid a mixed picture for U.S. earnings. We've had some disappointing results from some of the drug giants, Pfizer and Eli Lilly pre-market. 3M and Caterpillar shares also lower pre-market after their earnings results disappointed investors too. A massive $35 billion deal in the chip industry, lending some support to the tech sector, however. AMD buying rival Zilinx to help strengthen its lead in the market for data center chips. Just the latest, actually, in the huge merger spree that we've got going on in the chip sector. The big question now is how will rival Intel respond? In the meantime, a Supreme Court ruling late Monday highlights the major uncertainties for investors to going into next Tuesday's presidential election. The high court ruling that mail-in ballots in the swing state of Wisconsin must arrive by election day to be counted. It's perceived as a big win for the Republicans. All right, our next guest says a market-jolting, disputed election remains a very real possibility. And he's Greg Vallier, the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, great to have you on the show. We have so much to talk about, but I do want to take a step back just for international viewers that are watching this election and help them understand that this is not 
330 million Americans all heading to the polls. Every vote counts, but some votes matter more than others. And that comes down to the mathematics of the Electoral College and these battleground states that we always talk about. Just give us a sense of what we need to understand. Well, you need to get 270 votes and uh, it gets complicated because you could get uh, a popular vote victory like Hillary Clinton did four years ago and still lose in the Electoral College. So, and as you quite rightly pointed out, this is exactly what we saw in 2016. The popular vote was won by Hillary Clinton, but the election itself was won by President Trump. This ties to battleground states and why we keep hearing specific states mentioned in particular that we have to watch. It's not about a national poll, really, that we have to be looking at. We have to be looking at state polls and who's popular or most popular, at least, in some of these battleground states. Exactly. I mean, Hillary Clinton won California by over two million votes, but she'll stick. She's still got the same amount of electoral college votes no matter what. So the really contested states are the close ones like Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, maybe Wisconsin, Iowa, states like that, where I think the, the final margin will be very, very close. I mean, two of them that come to mind, Arizona and, and Pennsylvania. I think one of the big fears here, and it goes to the point about the contested election, is that the results in these states are so close, in addition to the votes that are being counted because they've been mailed in rather than cast on the exact day, that we have this window where we don't know who won the election. Well, as if the markets didn't have enough to worry about with no stimulus bill, uh, with an economy that may be softening, uh, we now have the possibility on two fronts of a disputed election. Number one, I don't think we'll know who won uh, on election night. It may take several days afterwards before all the votes are counted because so many votes are mail-in ballots. And number two, more ominously, if Donald Trump narrowly loses, he's made it clear he will appeal. He'll go to the courts. He's very litigious, as we all all know. I think he would go to Mr. Barr, his attorney general, and say, I want you to take this all the way to the Supreme Court because I won. And one other th thing, Julia, is that in tw the year 2000, it went to the Supreme Court and th they didn't decide until December 12th whether George W. Bush actually beat Al Gore. So it could take a while. How does that actually work then? It goes to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court can say, OK, you have to go back to the individual states and recount all those votes. That's what takes the time. Yes, indeed. And mm. Donald Trump's argument will be that these mail-in ballots are, are corrupt, rigged. He said it again yesterday. And yeah. so he will use that as his premise that the election was stolen from him. Are investors being complacent? given what we're seeing priced for stock markets in particular at this moment about that risk? We've sort of discounted it. I frankly, I think there are a lot of risks, whether it's the new explosion in, in COVID cases, whether it's a significant delay in finding out who won, whether it's a U.S. economy that may start to soften without stimulus bill. I think there are a lot of things right now to be concerned about. Greg, what do you make of, of what's happened? I mean, we've seen the Senate now adjourned until at least after the election. Do you think there's any hope of some kind of an agreement before the inauguration? And obviously that does depend on the results and the makeup of Congress. 
It's pretty unlikely, Julie. I suppose they could come back in a lame duck session in the middle of November, but I don't sense a lot of enthusiasm for that. So uh, let's say Biden does win. Uh, he wouldn't have a bill put together until well, Inauguration Day is January 20th. So it could be early February before we actually got a bill to help people. And quite clearly, the economy needs more assistance. Greg, the last time you were on the show, you first or made your first call. You said, look, I think Joe Biden's going to win this election. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot once again. Has anything about what you've seen, the final debate, the campaigning, even the polls, because at this time four years ago, we suddenly saw that collapse in support for Hillary Clinton. Has anything changed your mind about the election result, no, however long really. it takes? I'm not sure it's going to be a blowout, a blue wave. Maybe it's a light blue wave. I'm not sure the Senate will, will be more than a, a one-seat, two-seat uh, gain. But I, mm. I would say this. Big, big difference between now and four years ago. Tremendous surge of female voters for Biden. Tremendous surge of senior citizens for Biden. And incredibly, the Democrats have a lot more money to spend in the last couple of weeks now on TV ads. And young people voting as well, which is something that's quite astonishing yeah. compared to, um, to this time four years ago, which makes me happy. Whoever they're voting for, young people galvanized is good. Greg, great to chat to you. Thank you so much, sir. Greg Fellier there of AGF Investments. All right. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are up and running. That was the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange this Tuesday. And we are one short week away from Election Day here in the United States. Stocks trying to bounce in early trading, helped along by news of a mega merger in the tech industry. AMD buying rival Zilinx in an all-stock deal worth some $35 billion. We've also had some solid economic data, too. U.S. durable goods orders rising almost 2% last month. That's the fifth straight month of growth and significantly above expectations. That helping offset disappointing Q3 results from drug makers like Pfizer and Eli Lilly. Caterpillar earnings fell 54% on the quarter, but they did beat estimates. 3M shares, meanwhile, are lower after it failed once again to provide forward guidance. And we've discussed this on the show Firms being punished for being unable to provide guidance at a very unclear moment in time. Joining us now, Christina Hooper is Chief at Global Market Strategist at Invesco. Christina, great to have you on the show. In your latest note, and I loved it, you coined a phrase which I'm going to use, Pepto-Bismol days, digestion issues days, just with the sheer level of uncertainty and things going on at the moment, the event risk. And you say expect more of them. Absolutely, Julia. This is a very uncertain environment, and we know the market doesn't like uncertainty. Yes. Talk to me about between now and the election. What are you expecting? Is it just a case of expecting more volatility, up days, down days? I expect more volatility, but I expect the trend to be downward. There is just a lot of nervousness and apprehension in the market, and it's not just the presidential election. We have rising COVID-19 infections in the U.S. And all we need to do is look across the pond to see what's happening in Europe, where there are actually uh, where they're actually having increases in stringency. Uh, the lockdowns are more targeted than what we saw in the spring. But this could be America's future in just a few short weeks if we follow that same trajectory. 
Then, of course, we also have what seems uh, very much uh, a, a fait accompli when it comes to fiscal stimulus. In other words, no fiscal stimulus. And that's also causing concerns, uh, especially as it comes in tandem with rising COVID-19 infection rates. And then, of course, the cherry on top is this presidential election in just a week. So a lot of, of nervousness, a lot of market jitters, I expect. Uh, I think we should all be prepared for volatility and a bias towards downward volatility. Yeah, I mean, this is the key, Christina, and actually you raised so many good points there. As you said, actually what we're seeing if we look across at Europe is far more targeted shutdowns. But if you look in terms of case numbers, wave two actually looks far worse than, than wave one. Do you think we're underestimating the potential for a higher degree of lockdown, if not broad scale lockdown, similar to what we saw in March of April this year? The bar may be higher, but... So are the cases. Well, what we've heard from government leaders in the United States, uh, in Europe, for the most part, is that they don't expect to have wide-scale lockdowns, that that was a blunt instrument, not a surgical tool, that they know enough now that the lockdowns can be more targeted. I also should add that it does seem as though we've learned something from what we went through in the spring in terms of being able to utilize therapies to lessen the severity of the illness in many people. Uh, so I think that combination suggests that we might be able to get by with just targeted lockdowns, but I am no expert, um, I'm just an optimist. So hoping for the best, but recognizing that the trajectory is not looking good right now. Yeah, we have to be optimistic, but also um, realistic, I think, too. Speaking of being a realistic, Greg Valliere just on the show was saying that he thinks perhaps the market's underpricing the risk of either a contested election or a significant delay in just counting the votes here, whether they're mail-in or otherwise. And it could take some time to work out who actually won this election. Agree or disagree? I think there's a very good chance that we mm. see that. I know the Biden campaign is hoping for a strong win so they can close the books on election night, but that seems to be really a wish as opposed to something that is, is more uh, akin to reality. I think what we're more likely to see is what Greg um, alludes to, that environment in which we have uncertainty for days and we could very well have a contested election. So, Christina, Days of uncertainty, potentially downside risks in terms of the, the health crisis, no deal in sight as far as financial aid is concerned. You've set a bias for stocks to the downside. What should investors be doing at this moment? Investors should be doing nothing at all. Um, they have a long enough time horizon, most of them. Um, that's why we have investing plans and asset allocations is to weather storms like this. Uh, so I would advise uh, to not make any kind of rash decisions out of fear in the current environment. Um, there is uh, the potential to look for opportunities though. For example, those countries that are doing a good job managing this virus um, might emerge um, with even greater strength because Let's face it, this is unlikely to be our last pandemic. Um, so that those countries that are better able to manage this um, could wind up with a strong competitive advantage for the future. So we're, we're looking for opportunities. We're not making rash decisions. And I think finally, Julia, um, we just have to expect that um, this, that ultimately um, we do have strong monetary policy uh, that over the longer term, I believe creates an upward bias for stocks. 
So, so long as we have an accommodative Fed and accommodative central banks around the world, um, the picture is a lot brighter than we would assume just looking at infections, just looking at this tumultuous, the potential for a tumultuous presidential election, and just looking at uh, the fact that we don't have more fiscal stimulus uh, in the near term. Um, so, so I guess my last uh, message uh, to everyone is have some wine with that Pepto-Bismol. We've gone through contested elections before. We have gone through um, pandemics before. Um, we've we've uh, gone with a scarcity of fiscal stimulus before, um, and yet the bias for stocks is upward. And now we have an accommodative Fed to boot. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine what the combination of Pepto-Bismol and, and wine actually tastes like or feels like, quite well, frankly, but well, people are certainly uh, drinking a lot of wine in this pandemic. Uh, that. <laughs> maybe chocolate and wine, maybe that would be better and you can toss the Pepto-Bismol. There we go. Christina Hooper, thank you so much for that. Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. All right, up next, one of the things that could help, universal mask wearing could prevent tens of thousands of US deaths this winter, according to a new study. We speak to the author after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Move. In Portugal, face masks will become obligatory in public places from Wednesday. Russia, too, reinstates its mask mandate tomorrow. This amid mounting evidence that mask wearing can save lives. A new study found that more than 100,000 U.S. deaths could be prevented this winter if 96 percent of Americans wear masks. But the problem is the majority don't. In September, that number was at just 49 percent. Joining us now is Chris Murray. He's director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. Chris, fantastic to have you on the show. I want to talk about what the study found and some of the scenario analysis that you got. But your base case here was a September survey saying 49 percent of people always wear masks. Do we believe the numbers that high? I think we do. Uh, that was based on the premise surveys, and there are other surveys that have similar numbers, if not slightly higher. Uh, but it also depends on what setting. People really wear masks when they go to the grocery store. They're much less likely to wear a mask when they go to a restaurant or a bar or have guests at home. Yeah, so it depends on, uh, on where you are and, and what activity you're doing at that any given moment. Chris, let's walk through the scenarios. You were saying, and one of the first ones is, if we just stayed at that 49% of people wearing masks, if we continue to relax some of the social distancing measures that we've seen being done, how many deaths might we see in the United States by February of next year? Well, by the end of February, we can get up over cumulative deaths over 500,000. And, and that what's driving that is the big winter surge due to the seasonality of COVID-19. And we're seeing this play out in Europe and we're certainly starting to see it play out in the United States now as, as well, that winter surge. But from my um, analysis of your study, it gets above 500,000 cumulative deaths if you assume that there's this kick-in point when we get eight deaths per million people of the population, at which point you start to go into those shutdown measures. So given that the bar feels higher today for those kind of shutdown measures than it was perhaps back in March of April, is that a sort of dangerous assumption to make? Well, it certainly could be worse. In our worst case scenario where governments sort of get paralyzed and do nothing uh, is a dramatically higher number. 
But I think we're seeing in Europe, for example, um, places like Ireland, you just mentioned Portugal on, on, on the uh, broadcast, we're seeing a number of governments, when hospital systems are threatened to be overwhelmed, starting to act. And, and so I think uh, our statistical analysis suggests that governments will respond with some types of lockdowns, perhaps not as extreme as April. But that is very likely to occur, at least in our view. So that 500,000 number, unfortunately, is, is where we may well be headed. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, terrifying enough. Let, let's to be clear, the, the challenge here that you've got is that we don't know where the virus is going when you're trying to model for this. What's your sort of guesstimate now of the percentage of people wearing masks? Because if the alternative is lockdown, then arguably just saying to people, hey, just wear a mask and wear it a bit more. It feels like the easier option, even if it's become politicized here. Well, it's become politicized and the, 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 it shouldn't be because it is the best way both to save lives. You know, more than 100,000 lives could be saved in, in our study uh, by the end of February, just from getting mask use up to the level we see in Singapore. But uh, it also will delay the implementation of further mandates or lockdown and and save jobs. So regardless of what you prioritize, it's the smart thing to be doing is to be having a mask mandate and, and getting mask use way up. What is the percentage of mask users in Singapore, just out of interest? 95% always right. wear a mask. And so that that's the number we've benchmarked off as it is possible to achieve that. Uh, we look around the world because there's actually now pretty decent data every day about mask use around the world. And a number of countries in Latin America get uh, up in the high 80s and a number of countries in Southeast Asia are in the 90s. So it's quite possible to achieve that. Uh, and that's why we've modeled that scenario as, as you know, sort of the target for the United States. Yeah, because we're watching other countries do it. This is the, the critical point. What happens if we can't get to 95? Have you modeled scenarios? Let's say if we got to 85 percent. We did. We included in the analysis an 85 percent. Uh, we also internally model a, a number of different levels. And uh, you save fewer lives, but you still get a huge benefit. So basically going from where we are now, every increment of mask wearing is uh, has a huge benefit in terms of lives saved. And it also delays the onset of you know stress on the health system and the risk of those future shutdowns. So every, every part helps. We know that, that mandates also help. So not included in the paper, but as a statistical analysis we've done that shows when there's a government mandate that bumps up mask use. So it's not just individual choice, but, but government action on masks does, does have a benefit. And that's exactly where I was going to go next. So as a result of this and the analysis that you've done, are you saying that whether it's at a state level or even at a federal level, quite frankly, which is very complicated, simply saying to people, we want you to wear a mask and perhaps we'll fine you if you don't, works? It does. Uh, simply putting a mandate in place gives you uh, often more than a 10 percentage point uh, increase in mask use, which is a lot of lives saved. And if you add a penalty to that, so that if you, like the state of Victoria, 
in Australia that went from a very low level of mask use to a very high level in a week, they did that by having a $3,000 penalty for not wearing a mask. And so penalties statistically also give you a further bump up in mask use. So mandates with penalties really do work. Yes, an added incentive for not to get caught here. When it hurts your pocket, it, it actually works. Have you spoken to governments, whether it's at the state level or the, the federal level, about your findings? And, and if you have, what response have you had? We have. We, we have been in um, pretty much continuous contact since March with uh, both the White House and with Democratic leaders in, in Congress, as well as uh, the Vice President Biden's campaign. So we're, we're in very constant contact over the months of the modeling work uh, and, and our finding around masks uh, is certainly something that we've been communicating as well as to various state governors. Uh, I don't want you to get political, Chris, but I'm going to get political. Do you think there's more likelihood of a mask mandate under a different government based on what you're hearing from the Biden campaign versus your conversations with the White House? Well, I think that uh, both candidates have been very clear. Uh, I think there's very little likelihood under uh, President Trump of a national mask mandate. And certainly Vice President Biden's been quite explicit about promoting the idea of a national mask mandate, even though there's clearly some constitutional and legal uh, issues around around that. I'll take that as a yes. You're a diplomat. Chris Murray, thank you so much for coming on the show and doing great work with the study. Thank you. The director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. All right, still to come, as fall moves into winter, the aviation sector still finds itself in dire straits. Hear from the CEO of Dubai Airports on the challenges ahead. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Nearly 200 airports in Europe face insolvency over the coming months if they can't see their traffic recover by the end of the year. That's according to the Airports Council International Europe. Even the world's busiest international airport in Dubai is struggling to recover too. John Terrace spoke to the CEO and joins us now. John, I don't feel like it's a fear of flying anymore. It's the difficulty of the quarantine either side. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree completely. And this is the, the case that the G20 is making and also the CEO right. of Dubai airports at the same time, Julia. But listen to the numbers we're talking about, nearly 200 airports going under. Uh, let's take a look at the World Travel and Tourism Council and their latest numbers in terms of normal contribution, in terms of jobs, 330 million. But look at this, Julia. We're losing nearly 200 million jobs worldwide by the end of this year in the entire sector. The contribution to GDP is usually about 10%. That's dropping by five and a half trillion dollars. So the key points from uh, Dubai uh, are, yes, we need to remove the quarantines unless you test positive. And we have to think about setting up air corridors and starting with Dubai to London. They hope to have it by the first quarter of next year. Let's take a listen. If we could adopt one which could give you a, a positive or negative result to a COVID test, in literally a few minutes, that would transform the whole thing. But that's not just the entire picture, because the other problem, of course, is the extended quarantine periods that are being applied at the moment. In, in my view, they are actually doing us more damage than any of the other single measures, because people don't have the time to be able to spend up to 14 days in quarantine on reaching their destination. I'm wondering if you can get an early win with an air quarter between 
uh, Dubai and London, for example. There's discussion of London to New York and adding Beijing or Shanghai. When could we see an established air corridor to serve as a case study? Well, we believe we have all the steps in place, both here and in London, to make that uh, happen. But the thing is, of course, before we can get any agreement signed, we have to get the governments on board. If we could get a travel corridor established between here and London, then we could uh, very, very quickly see a massive surge in traveller confidence and the numbers starting to come back. And what uh, Griffiths is saying, uh, Julia, this is a health crisis, we have to acknowledge it, but it's also an economic and social crisis. And we have an industry that contributes so much to GDP, you have to have the government pushing in the same direction. I have to say, and this is a question I pose to him, it's a tough sell, right? Because you have cases uh, spiking in Europe, they all have different policies, and cases spiking in the United States. It's very hard to get a single global policy, but they want this by the first quarter of next year. That's the aim here. Yeah, you need to be able to do a test when you land, test a few days later, test again. We've got to get more coordinated on this. John Defterius, thank you so yeah. much for that. Couldn't agree more. All right, let's move on. NASA says it now has definitive proof that water exists on the moon and in multiple places. It's based on research from two studies. Scientists found water not only at the moon's freezing poles, but also in areas where the sun shines. It's a discovery one scientist seen came as a surprise with some pretty important implications. We weren't expecting water. We, we, we weren't guessing that water could survive in the sunlit part of the moon. Um, and so thinking about how did it get there and how did it survive is an interesting scientific question that tells us something about the history of the moon, might tell us about processes that take place on airless, other airless bodies in our solar system. The finding came in part from data gathered by NASA's Sophia Airborne Telescope, as well as other lun- as the Lunar Orbiter. Get it straight, we love a bit of space on this show. Beam me up, Scotty, please, just not before the election. All right, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.